in his work, Thoughts Upon the African Slave Trade, John Newton wrote, I hope it will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. If you don't know the story, Newton was a slave ship captain, and on one trip during a storm, when it was thought that the ship might sink, he prayed for deliverance. It said that this experience began his conversion, and later, while aboard a slave ship bound for the West Indies, he became violently ill with fever, and he asked for God's mercy. An experience that he claimed was the turning point in his life. If you don't know who John Newton is, he's the man who penned the words, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. The incredible thing about John Newton's story is that eventually he came to the point where he was able to look at who he once was with clarity and not only look, but actively put his feet upon a new path. He says this, this is faith. A renouncing of everything we are apt to call our own and relying wholly upon the blood, righteousness, and intercession of. He changed the way he lived his life in how he viewed and treated fellow image bearers. This morning, we're going to look at another conversion story, the conversion of Saul. A couple things about this man, Saul. One, he was a man who was zealous for God. That's something we can't take away from Saul. He had a zeal probably that was unmatched by many in his day, so much so that he was willing to kill those whom he perceived to be enemies to the faith. He was a man who was knowledgeable of God and of the Hebrew Scriptures, but see, knowing about someone is vastly different from knowing someone. Three, he was a man who sought the advancement of God's kingdom, but he didn't understand that the kingdom does not advance by might, but through humility and love. What we'll see this morning and what we will hopefully be challenged by is that when the Holy Spirit enters into our lives and we are delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son, Everything changes. In fact, this morning as I was going through my notes, I thought to myself that would have been a more appropriate title for our sermon this morning. Everything changes. And that change, if not cultivated like any relationship, will grow stale and devoid of any sort of power. But when nurtured and disciplined, this change grows deep and wide. And not only are we identified with this new kingdom, we actually become active participants in it, seeing with new eyes and hearing with new ears. So so let's take a look at our text this morning. You were given a uh, bulletin when you came in, and we're going to follow a simple outline that's on your right side, and a portion of the text is on your left. If you have your Bibles with you, you can open those to Acts chapter 9. 
Acts chapter 9, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 31. So a plot twist for Saul. Paul, Saul's world is completely turned upside down, or better, right side up, as he is setting out to do one thing, and he ends up doing another. Let's, let's take a look. It says this, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And he asked them for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. A couple of observations. Quick thing, right? Who is this person? Saul, right? Saul is the same guy from Acts chapter 8, who stood in approval and actually held the the murderer's clothes for them as Stephen was stoned to death, if you remember. He's a bad news guy. But also, the question that we need to ask, was Saul simply a lunatic or a murderer? I'm going to venture to say no. I want to read something from uh, Acts chapter 22, verses 3 and following. It says, I am a Jew... Born in Tarshish, in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are on this day. I want to read you something else that's interesting. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, it says this, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, and this is Paul speaking, who later changed his name to Paul, but right now we're going to refer to him as Saul. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Blameless. Right? This guy's not a lunatic. He actually believes that what he is doing is God's work. This is what he believes. It's important. Hold that in our thoughts for a second. Another thing that comes to mind as I'm reading this, it says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. A better translation would be breathing out threats to murder. He was actually on his way threatening their death. It wasn't that he just wanted to murder them. That was his goal. He wanted to see these people killed because they were opposing everything that he believed to be right and good with the world. And another thing, with the blessing from the high priest, Saul makes his way beyond the borders of Jerusalem to carry out his mission to eradicate this new thing called the way. And an interesting term, the way, is, 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 is something that we should understand as, as a specific way of life. But also there's some Exodus echoes too, that that term shows up in Exodus, that this is the way to redemption, the way from Egypt and to the promised land. So this is salvation language, and he wanted to destroy it. What's the point? In the words of F.F. F. Bruce, Bible commentator, Saul was operating from the position that the old must stay, therefore the new must go go, as the two were incompatible. The two were incompatible. 
So let's continue marching along in this text. Verses 4 through 9, it goes like this. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. What an interesting turn of phrase. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Right? This scene embodies Everything that you would see in an Old Testament theophany. What's a theophany? That's when the presence of God kind of landed on earth, right? The presence of God kind of landed on earth. And and this repetition of Saul, Saul kind of harkens back to these Old Testament um, callings of a prophet. Saul, Saul, he's, he's, he's enlisting him into something right now. And then he says something like this, Jesus in response to Saul. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me. Why are you persecuting me? Such an interesting thing that Jesus says to Saul, right? Because Saul wasn't actively killing Jesus, but what was he doing? He was persecuting the church. And what we have to continue to understand and what we've talked about so often here at Redeemer Fellowship is that when we come to faith in Jesus, We are brought into union with Christ. Our own mission statement says that we share together in the life of Christ by loving God and neighbor. Because what does it mean to participate in Christ but but, but that we identify with him? And that what is done to us is done to him. And, And even better, what we do to one another We do to him. I want to read from Matthew 25. To those on the right, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. This is Jesus speaking. And to those on the left, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did it to me. Luke 10 talks about this as well in verse 16. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. See, there is this relationship between the church and Christ that is articulated through language such as union with Christ that we are so identified with Jesus that, that, that what happens to us is happening to Jesus. Now, make no mistake about it. There is a creator-creature distinction. We are not God. We are not Jesus. But, oh, we are of the family of God. And we are in union with Christ. That's what is going on here. That's what Jesus is trying to articulate to Saul as he's on the road to continue persecuting the way. And another thing he's trying to get at, he's like, listen, Saul, I know you're zealous for me, but you have no idea who I am. You think you know who I am. You haven't a clue. Because I am the Lord Jesus, the one who was killed and three days later rose again and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. That's who you are persecuting. And Saul is just struck down. Saul is struck down, and we're going to get to that in just a second. But I I think it's interesting that his traveling companions 
What happened? The men who were traveling with him, they stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And, and this is probably a stretch, but, but what do our traveling companions see of us as we make our way through this life as, as followers of Jesus? Do they see Christ or do they see some distortion of what we call Christianity? It's a question that we need to wrestle with, that I would encourage you to wrestle with. What do our traveling companions see as they look at our lives? So what's the point of all this? See, Paul comes face to face with the risen Lord Jesus and finally understands that his zeal is misdirected. And in coming to this realization, he is set up for what will be an extremely humiliating life of serving his king. While he was now physically blind, his eyes were more open than they'd ever been before. But even think about like the humiliation that this man now is going to experience, that he has to be led by the hand to his destination. And he's going to sit there, and he's not going to eat for three days, and he's going to have some sort of crustiness on his eye. We don't really know what it means by scales fell from his eyes. We'll look at that in a sec. But, but this is a humiliating posture, and, and, it's, and it's appropriate because the life of Paul will be one of humiliation. And guess what Paul tells us? He says, follow me as I follow Jesus. And what does it mean to follow Jesus but to wrap ourselves in humility, to wrap ourselves in the suffering of Christ? That's our calling. And that's what Paul, that's what Saul is being called to at this very moment. As we shift gears now, the scene shifts as the camera zooms in on a disciple named Ananias, verses 10 through 19. It says this, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, and he said, in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. It's just so interesting how that word shows up constantly in the book of Acts. Rise, rise. It's the same word for resurrection, in case you're wondering. That's what's going on here. Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarshish named Saul, for behold, he's praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, you're crazy. No, he doesn't say that, but kind of sort of. I've heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Let's, let's look at this man, Ananias. He, he shows up here and then we never hear of him again. And this is a different Ananias, obviously, from earlier on in Acts because that guy's dead. But this one is one that shows up, does an incredible work, and then we never hear from him again. Which, honestly, that should be our goal in life. To proclaim the gospel, live simple lives, die and be forgotten. Because it's about Christ. But let's see what happens here. Ananias' response, here am I. Which mirrors Isaiah's response to the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. Interesting. 
He's being basically called to be a prophet for a brief moment in time. He's the man of the hour. He's the one who's going to speak the word of God. But Ananias is frightened, justifiably so. Everyone knows who Saul is. They know what he's coming to do. And he's scared. He's scared. But this is, this is kind of what happens when, when we are called to step out in faith. Right? There's something unknown beyond that first step, even beyond where we're standing. But, but God calls us to act in faith. God calls us to take risks for the kingdom of God, not knowing where that path will lead, but trusting that God is the one who is in control. And so Ananias is frightened. And, and what I love about God in this particular scene is that he's patient, but he's firm. He's patient but firm. Go, verse 15, because he is the chosen instrument of mine to carry my name. What's the point here before we move on? See, God has a way of pushing us into situations that bristle against conventional wisdom, forcing us to rely on wisdom from God. In other words, God calls his people to take risks on behalf of the kingdom. God calls his people to take risks on behalf of the kingdom and engaging with enemies or people who normally strike fear in us is one of the ways we're called to embody this calling. That's what we're called to do. One scholar says it like this, the truth we know of a person or people must move to the background. And what we know of God's desire for them must move to the foreground. The danger we imagine inscribed on their bodies must be read against the delight we know God takes in their light, that, that, their life. That same divine delight covers us. That same divine delight covers us. So, so for those of you who only see right-wing fanaticism, you're called to see the image. For those of you who only see left-wing fanaticism, you're called to see the image. And for those who only see criminal, you're called to see the image. That's what's being instructed of Ananias. He's called to look not at what he knows of Saul, but what he knows of God. Not of what he knows of Saul, but what he knows of God. And the text continues. Verses 17 through 19. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he arose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Such a beautiful thing happens here. Ananias refers to Saul as brother. Brother. This is familial language. See, what Ananias is acknowledging because of his obedience to Almighty God, what he's acknowledging is that you who once were far off You're now a part of my family. 
And see, let's talk about conversion for a second. What happens when we enter into a relationship with Christ? What happens when we bend our knee to King Jesus, but the Holy Spirit fills us, the Holy Spirit awakens us and quickens us, is what the old school cats used to say, quickens us to new life. And, and you know what else happens? We're adopted into the family of God. I want to read to you from Romans chapter 8, verses 12 and following. So then, brothers... We are debted not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. See, see, what happens when we come to faith in Christ is that we are adopted into the family of God. And God becomes our father. Our father. And he's a good father. And some of us may have negative experiences with our fathers. But see, what happens is that God is not like that dad. He's a good dad. He's a faithful dad. He's a dad that's there no matter what. I was reading in Psalm 11 this morning, and it says that he sees. And that, that one line, and, and I believe verse 4, Psalm 11, it says that he sees. Our father sees us. Our Father sees our anxieties. Our Father sees our pain. Our Father sees our fear. Our Father sees our hopes and our dreams. Our Father sees our sin. And our Father sees our good deeds. And guess what? All that that he sees, he still calls us his children. He still calls us his children. That's what happens when we come to faith in Christ. We're adopted into a new family, a new family, and we are given new eyes to see. We are given new ears to hear. See, conversion is not simply an intellectual ascent to some new ideas, but it is the process by which God, through the work of his Holy Spirit, breathes new life into us and adopts us into his family. Everything changes. Everything changes. Oh, what a beautiful thing. What, what, an incredible, what an incredible grace that we're afforded as followers of Jesus. The text goes on in verses 20 through 31, and I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read through this text and just comment along the way. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the Son of God. I, I, I kind of want to stop right there. I'm going to stop right there. Immediately. Right, he spends, spends a couple of minutes, maybe a couple of days, it says some days, with the disciples at Damascus. And then immediately, immediately, what does he do? He proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is what? The son of God. 
I mean, if that's not night and day, I don't know what is, right? Because here's a man who went from persecuting the way, seeking to murder Christians, basically saying, this person, Jesus, whom you are worshiping, he's a criminal, to identifying him as the son of God. New eyes, new heart, new everything. Why? Because everything changes. This thing is killing me. Let's keep going. If it falls off, I'll figure it out. He is the Son of God, and all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was what? The Christ. Not only is he the Son of God, but he's the Messiah we've all been waiting for. Here is a guy, Saul, who knows his Bible. He studied under Gamaliel, one of the top teachers of the day. He knows the scriptures, and he knows that there is a Messiah promised and coming. He's a Pharisee. He believes in the resurrection. He's not crazy. But now he sees that Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. He's the king. He's the king. And he can't help but tell everybody. That's what's on his lips. Jesus was the Christ. He's the one we've been waiting for. And when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Just use your imagination and kind of see what that must have been like. Right? It actually is said that, that, that they, used to, they used to drop products and, and, and materials through the windows. But here's a, a grown man being dropped through the window down the wall. It's just such an interesting kind of visual. But anyway, keeps going. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him. So same thing happens as with Ananias. They're like, whoa, uh uh We know who this guy is. Get him out of here. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. But look who, who shows up. Barnabas shows up. You know what's interesting and ironic about this? That later on, Paul and Barnabas separate. But Barnabas is the guy that has his back. I got to be honest. I love Paul, but he was probably a difficult guy to be friends with. Right? But he, but, I mean, he was amazing. I don't even know if that's blasphemy or not. Who knows? <laughs> but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarshish. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. What we're going to see throughout the rest of the book is that this is the pattern. This kind of captures the pattern of Paul's ministry. See, Paul proclaims the truth of the gospel. It bears fruit. He's persecuted, he flees, and then he does it again. And we're going to see that over and over again throughout the rest of this book. He proclaims the gospel, fruit, he bears fruit, he gets persecuted, he runs away, and then he goes and does it again. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. He's so committed to the gospel that he's not, he's not scared of, of, what is, of what is waiting for him in cities. He's not worried about it because he's trusting in Almighty God. He had a face-to-face interaction with God. 
And what we'll see, and as you read the New Testament, especially as his letters, is that that vision of the risen Christ that he, he experienced on the road to Damascus shapes his entire theology as he unpacks it throughout his letters. He constantly goes back to it. The resurrection means everything to Paul. It is the center of his teaching, is the resurrection of King Jesus. And so what's the point of all this? See, God is in the business of redemption, and he is still taking the old and making it new, bringing life from death. That's what God does. That's what he did in the life of Saul. That's what he's doing in and through our lives. That's what I'm praying he does through this body here on the Jersey Shore. So as we draw to a close this morning, there are just a couple things I want us to catch from this story. See, what the Holy Spirit did in the life of Saul was take his zeal for God and he redeemed it. See, Saul went from being a zealous follower of Yahweh to being a zealous follower of Yahweh. Only now he understands who Yahweh is. He gets it now. At one time, his zeal was manifested through hatred and violence, whereas now his zeal is manifested through humility and love. We see the same thing happening through Ananias. His natural self immediately jumps to fear and judgment. But he's also a new creation. And faith and obedience through the power of the Holy Spirit pushes him toward an individual who he would have never associated with before. And I, lo I love the story of Ananias because I think it gives us hope. Because all of us have have those things still lingering. Remember, we're saints, but we still speak with the accent of a sinner. And so we all have that lingering sort of thing that, that we're unable to kind of break, but God is God's pushing us. He's pushing us. He wants us to break free from those old ways. He wants us to put to death the deeds of the flesh, as we read in Romans chapter 8. That's what he's calling us to, and it's a process. It's called sanctification. That's what theologians call it. And, and it's progressive. It happens over time. See, see the road from, from sinner to saint is not this. It's, it's kind of like this, you know, and until eventually we're glorified in the presence of Almighty God. See, when we bend our knee to King Jesus, we're given new eyes, a new heart, a new life. We're filled and empowered with the Holy Spirit of God and everything changes. Everything changes. How we approach money is different because we know Jesus. How we approach politics is different because we know Jesus. How we understand success and power is different because we know Jesus. How we engage with our families, our spouses, our children is different because we know Jesus. How we understand sexuality must be different because we know Jesus. How we approach issues like abortion must be different because we know Jesus. How we engage with our neighbors, regardless of their political affiliation, their ethnicity, their race, is different because we know Jesus. See, everything is different because we know Jesus. And if it's not, then, then the question needs to, to be begged of us, do we know Jesus? Everything has to change. Now, I don't, I don't want to get political this morning. 
And so what I mean is I'm not going to take a side on, on anything, right? Because the events of this week have been overwhelming. I don't know if you've watched the news. Mass shooting in Indianapolis. The death of Dante Wright. The riots and protests taking place in our country. The hatred of police being spewed all over media. Is it possible for us as followers of Jesus, to see with new eyes, to empathize with the pain that so many are feeling right now while resisting the temptation to jump to judgment. See, we're new creations, which means we have to look different from the world. We cannot simply adopt what, 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 a, what, a, what, a, what a pundit on the news is, is giving us. We can't. We can't do it, guys. We can't do it. We have to be different because we are new creations. It says this in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 16 through 21. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. We represent Christ. Remember, we share in the life of Christ. We participate in the life of Christ. We are in union with Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I, I, I can't help but wonder if we would regularly, regularly remind ourselves of the gospel, of what we once were and what God is conforming us and transforming us into, if we would regularly remind us ourselves of where we came from, similar to how John Newton knows who he was and he shudders at the thought of what he was involved in, might our compassion be magnified toward fellow image bearers? Might we not view people through the lens of, of a political identity, a racial identity, an ethnic identity, but rather through the lens of they are created in the image and likeness of God. Therefore, I am called to love them. Because the kingdom advances not by might, as we saw with the conversion of Saul, but through humility and love, through compassion through proclaiming the good news of Jesus in both word and deed. The gospel changes everything. We belong to Christ, and we have been adopted into the family of God. We are no longer free to operate according to worldly standards, which breed death and destruction, but we operate according to the law of Christ which is to bear one another's burdens. We share together in the life of Christ by loving God and neighbor and by extending kingdom hope to those around us, by practicing humility 
and lifting up the broken around us in the name of the resurrected king. Like Saul, we must be about kingdom expansion, and like Saul, we must do so through humility, love, compassion, and peace because we are new creations. Because we are new creations. Now, if you're here this morning and and you don't know this man, Jesus, oh, I pray that today is the day you'd bend your knee to King Jesus, that you would confess your sins, that you would allow his grace to pour over you, that you might be forgiven and adopted into this family. It's a broken and messy family, but it is the family of God. It is the only place where we will find salvation. This is good news. This is what we're about here at Redeemer Fellowship. Let's go to the Lord. Father in heaven, oh Lord, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for the wonder of the good news, Lord. Lord, you saved a wretch like me. You saved wretches like us, Father. Lord, every single one of us in our flesh are capable of such horrific things, Lord God. Oh, but in your grace and your mercy, Lord, you have called us to yourself, Father. I pray that we would live in light of that calling, that we would be zealous for you as Paul, as Saul was zealous for you, Father. Fill us with your spirit. Help us to walk in faithfulness. Help us to love you. Help us to be a church that shows the world what you're like, Lord, as we proclaim the good news of Jesus and live out the good news of Jesus. Lord, we love you with all of our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.